Bible, turn to James chapter 4. We're going to go there very, very quickly, verses 1 through 6 this morning, as we learn and start a new series entitled Battles. Now, the fact that there are going to be battles, and those battles are the result of conflict. Conflict. Conflict is a word that we do not like to use very often because it often conveys some sort of attitude or disposition of conflict. But the fact is, conflict is inevitable. Conflict is unavoidable. I don't care how healthy your marriage is, you're going to have conflict. I I don't care how strong your family is, you're going to have conflict. I don't care how wonderful your church is. Hopefully this is your church. There's going to be conflict because more than likely, as you rub elbows with on a day-to-day basis or a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, the person sitting next to you is very selfish. They're often very self-centered. They want what they want. They know what they want, and they're going to try to do everything they, everything they can to attain or to achieve what they want. That is human nature. Husbands and wives and wives between their husbands, they're There's conflict because a wife wants something and a husband wants something, and sometimes those are not the same. And so things are said and things are done that that brings conflict into the relationship. And the fact that we are human beings says that we are going to experience conflict. Some of you might say, well, I live a life void of conflict. I say you're either in complete denial or your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. Are you living in a completely dysfunctional world and that you are so codependent upon those around you that you will not speak up and say, I don't like that and I don't want that? And the fact is, conflict is unavoidable. Even Jesus found it inevitable because in his earthly ministry, there were a series of conflictual encounters with the religious elite of his day and sometimes even with his disciples. And the fact is that we learn in James chapter 4, in verse 1, we see that the Bible says, what causes quarrels and conflicts among you? What is it that causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? We see that James is writing to believers who are experiencing conflict in the fellowship and in the family of God. Imagine that, disciples, believers, acting like human beings, giving in to their carnal tendencies and their Adamic nature, and rubbing elbows with each other, and involved in quarrels, now not fistfights, but disagreements are in conflict. And the fact that he writes to this church, it is a message, I believe, that he could write even today for us. So how do we manage conflict? Let's take a look at the Bible and let's look, first of all, in verse 1, and let's understand what ignites conflict. What is it that ignites conflict? Conflict starts with a spark. There's a spark. If you're going to start a fire, you've got to light a match. There's got to be a little bit of spark there. So where does the spark come from? What ignites conflict? The Bible has a lot to say about that. And in James chapter 4, he writes for us through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the writing of James, the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine? Imagine James, the brother of Jesus, always living with a perfect brother, always living with a perfect son. I would imagine because he's imperfect, because while they shared the same mother, they didn't have the same father. Jesus was of divine origin, and because he was of divine origin, he was perfect. 
How would you like to live with the perfect child, the perfect son, the perfect brother who never did anything wrong? You can never say, Mom, Jesus did it. Right? Now, Jesus may have never had conflict with him within his heart, but I can imagine James had a lot of conflict with the perfect brother and the perfect son named Jesus. So he, he's been living with this conflict within himself for quite some time, and now he is addressing it in the church. So he's saying to us, what is the spark that ignites conflict? Look at the verse in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Notice the text. There's the word passions. What ignites, what sparks conflict? Passions. And I'm convinced that uncontrolled passions are at the root. They are what spark conflict. They are one of the three things by which conflict is caused or it originates Passions. This is the word that we get, the word hedonist. We talked about it a couple of Sundays ago, where a hedonist is someone who is passionately pursuing self-gratification through pleasure. The fact that we live in a hedonistic culture that is constantly seeking to do whatever is necessary in order to bring pleasure to itself. And we would have a tendency to say as believers, shame on them. But the reality is that is human nature. And all of us, because we have a carnal nature, have a self, and that self rises up and has a tendency to be selfish. And because we are selfish, we want those things that we believe will bring us pleasure. We want to bring those things into our lives that make us happy. And we are constantly pursuing those things by which we can gratify those pleasure-seeking things that are going to make me happy. You do it in your marriage. You do it in your family. We do it in our community. We do it in our church. And it's the reason why I think many times we have conflict even among nations. We are seeking to please ourselves, to do what gratifies self. And he's saying here, it is the reason why you have conflict is because there are passions. And these passions, he says, are at war. They are at war within you. The word war is an interesting word. It simply means that there are little soldiers, little selves inside of here that are battling it out within you to attain and to achieve and to possess those things that self-believes will bring pleasure and self-satisfaction. And notice the war, this battle, these little, this little army of selves that's marching to advance, to attain, and to have victory, to achieve, and to possess those things that make me happy and that bring me pleasure. Notice the wars are where? They're within you. He's saying to them, you can't blame your society. You can't blame your culture. You can't even blame the devil. Blame yourselves, because within you is the selfish tendency that you have to do everything you can to please yourself, to bring yourself happiness and self-gratification. And so he's saying that the reason why you guys are having this conflict is because there are those among you who are seeking to please themselves at the expense of everyone else. I mean, think about it. If I'm not concerned about what pleases God and only what pleases me, and if I don't care what pleases you and only pleases me, how's that going to relate into my marriage, into my family, and into our faith community if everyone acted like that? Conflict. And he's saying that's the reason there's conflict among you. Secondly, not only uncontrolled passions, but notice unfulfilled pursuits. He says in the next sentence, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Notice the reason why 
is because these unfulfilled pursuits, there are some people who are seeking to fulfill, they are pursuing their desires. The word desires is not a bad or a good thing, but they are desires. Some desires that we have are good. I mean, you're thinking about a, a, a craving, a desire that you have right now for lunch here in a little bit. That's a good thing. But that passion, if it's treated in a way that it shouldn't, we overeat, we overindulge, and that can be bad. And so the desires, whether they're good or bad, some are evil and some are good, he doesn't qualify or quantify which those are, but he says these desires that are within you, these wants that you have, these desires more like wants, I want this, I want that, I want what I want, these wants that are within you, what are you doing? You're seeking to pursue these wants and the end result is you do not have them. You're pursuing them, but you can't bring satisfaction to the wants. I want this, but it's unattainable. And because you're seeking to fulfill these wants and you fail, the end result is frustration. And there's nothing like frustration that fuels or ignites conflict. When I want something from my spouse and I don't attain that, that brings frustration, and frustration brings conflict. When I have something I want in the church and I don't attain it, I don't get it, then that brings frustration, and that frustration causes conflict. And the end result, then he notices this, it is what? Murder. And now he's not suggesting literal murder, but he's suggesting the idea, the concept of the words of Jesus, where Jesus says, if you, what? What did Jesus say about murder? If you hate, it's equal to murder. What he's reminding them is, is the consequences, and us as well, the consequences of the degradation and the, the put-down or the destruction that, that this is causing. They're destroying one another. They are devouring one another. They are defeating one another. It is a concept, an idea that I want what I want, and if I don't get what I want, I'm going to kill you. Not literally, but I'm going to crush you, man, until I get it. I imagine what that does to a relationship, regardless of how great it may have been. Not only do they desire things and don't attain them, but notice they covet them. The word covet is also the word we get for jealousy. Now, what was causing some of the conflict in the church was not only that there were some things that they were passionate about and they were pursuing they couldn't get it, not only were the desires that they wanted and they couldn't attain them, but now there are things that they're coveting. And a covet is simply something that I see what you have. It's not that I don't want you to have it. I don't want you to have it, but I want what you have for myself. And if what you have, I want. I don't want you to have it. I want it. Whether it's a position in the church or whether it's a, a possession you may have, it is the idea of wanting what someone else has. And you're going to seek to do everything you can to get it from them so that you can possess it. Whether it's power or prestige or prominence or position or whatever it is. Now, if that exists in a marriage or in a family or in a church or in a country or a community, imagine how that would reflect in relationship. It brings nothing but conflict. And in their best effort, notice, do they attain it? Do they achieve it? Do they possess it? The answer is no. The end result is they don't get it. They fail in getting that which they are coveting. And so as a result of that failure, what is there? There's frustration. And that frustration ignites the relationship and causes conflict between you and that individual. And the end result is what? Quarrels and fights. These are not literal fights in that you're fist fighting, but it's, it, it's quarrels and fights. It's tension. 
The end result is that. And so they are these unfulfilled pursuits that end up damaging the relationship. When we think about David with Bathsheba, and he was on the rooftop and he saw her down and he was watching her bathe, and he coveted what didn't belong to him. He desired it, he wanted it, and he pursued it, and he brought her into his home, and he had a child with her, and in order to cover it up, what did he do? He had her husband put out on the battlefield, withdrew the forces, and he had him killed. That's how destructive this covetousness and how these desires can have an impact, not on just a marriage and a family and a church, but a community. Conflict. Everybody wanting what they want. Everybody coveting what everyone else has. Everyone else seeking to please themselves. And there's conflict in this church among believers. This is not a letter to unbelievers. This is a letter that is written to believers who are acting like this. But not only were there uncontrolled passions and unfulfilled pursuits, but there were unanswered prayers. One of the main reasons why they were acting the way they were acting is because this shows the spiritual declension that these people had dropped to an all-time level low in their spiritual reality. Notice what it says in, verse, in the next sentence. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There were some in the church that were not praying at all, and there were some who were praying. Now, let's take the first matter. In the first sentence, he says, notice he says, you did not have. Why? Because you do not ask. You want these things. You desire these things. These things you believe will bring you happiness and pleasure. And, and, and so instead of coming to God and asking God to give them to you, you are acting self-sufficient, and you're acting on your own, devising your own plans to attain and to achieve what you believe is going to make you feel good, that's going to make you happy. You completely let God out of the picture. You devise a strategy, you work a method, and you execute a plan so that you can get what you want and you believe you need in order to be happy. And so we see here that there's a failure to pray personally. These people were not praying at all. They were taking matters into their own hands. They themselves were assuming the position of a sovereign, gracious God who is the giver of all gifts. And they were saying, I don't need you, God. I can get it myself. Now, there were some who were not praying personally, but there were some who were praying with the wrong purpose. Because notice there were some in the fellowship that he's writing to, they were praying. And they were asking God for these things, but they were not getting these things. And the reason that they were not getting these things, and God, in all of his graciousness, who is the giver of all good gifts, was not answering their prayer, was because their motives were wrong. They were praying for the wrong motive. It says here that they were praying so that God, the giver of all good gifts, would give them graciously what they needed so that they then could take what belongs to God and spend it on their own pleasures. And God does not bestow gifts so that we can spend them on our own pleasures. He doesn't. Ever. And so if you're praying for the wrong motive other than his glory and the advancement of his kingdom, you are praying for the wrong reason. Think of Ananias and Sapphira, for example, who I believe prayed. Say, Lord, we got a piece of property over here, and we're, gonna, we're, we're asking that you help us sell this property because we need to give the total proceeds to the church. This is what I, I imagine the verse says. I don't know this for a fact. And God allowed them to sell the property in a very difficult time. They got this money, and they, as they looked at it, 
was a lot of money. And their desires, this pleasure-seeking, self-centeredness within them, they you know, that's all, I can't give all this. So they're going to give a portion. They bring it and they give a portion saying it's all, and they hit a portion for themselves. What would cause a believer to do that? This right here. They were seeking God to answer their prayer so they could spend, they could use what God gave them on themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with us clothing ourselves. Aren't you glad the person sitting next to you or in front of you has clothes on this morning? I said, aren't you glad? We'd be very embarrassed in here if none of us had clothing on. Now, we don't live in an Adam and Eve world anymore, and we, we do have clothing, and that's a good thing, but we're not in fig leaves. You know, we, we like to cover it up because it hides a multitude of sins, right? Makes us look skinny if we're not skinny. And they even have spandex these days that can tuck it all in. That's probably why you're walking around like this and can't talk. Anyway, we got here in a car, and, and we need transportation. We need a roof over our heads. But we need to be really, really careful that, that we are not asking God to bless us and to give us graciously what we think we need so that we can use it on our own pleasures, to satisfy our own cravings and selfish desires. Because we covet what our neighbor's driving. God, I want what he or she's driving. I want to wear what he and she are wearing. I, I want that. But we have to be careful. We must pray like Jesus prayed, who up in the garden before he was crucified, he said, Lord, not my will, but what? Your will be done. He didn't really like the prospect of a future day of suffering on a cross for sins that he didn't commit and to die this horrific death. And yet he says, Lord, not my will, but your will. Our prayer should be, Lord, if I'm not praying your will, then change my will and my wants to be your will and your wants. And I, I wonder, I imagine, you may have been praying for something for years and you've not gotten the answer from God. Maybe it's because you're praying for the wrong motives. You see, that's the spark that ignites conflict. But let's take a look then at the next verse and see what intensifies conflict. Because once we light the spark, the spark then begins a flame. And there, there are, there, there, there's this idea of taking a spark and throwing gasoline on it. You ever did that? I did that when I was younger. I don't do it anymore. We have gas grills now. You can bloom and it lights up and everything's great. You know, uh, when you have a grill and maybe you're going to be grilling this, this weekend, tomorrow, some hamburgers or something. And most of us have gas grills, bloom and it's up. Remember the old charcoal that didn't light very well? And you, and you let it match but it didn't work and then you put some gasoline on it and it sparked through it and it went, Phew! That ever happened to you? Sure it has. That's what, what we're talking about here. What, what intensifies conflict? Notice in the next sentence, you adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes, whoever's contemplated, whoever's reflected upon friendship with the world, I want you to be noticed that to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. He's writing to believers who have committed their hearts and their life and their love to Christ through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who now have been redeemed and they have been rescued. And now there's this intimate love relationship. And when we enter into this relationship with God the Father, through faith in his son, we give him all of our affections. We love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That's our commitment. And anything short of that is not a salvation experience. You can't say, I want the cross and salvation, but I'm going to hold on to all of these things. No, when we come to faith in Christ, we'll lay it all before him and say, here's my all, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, my everything, my marriage, everything, I give it to you. But notice that because they made that commitment, now he calls them adulterers. What are they doing? They were committed to giving him all of their affection, but now they're reneging on that commitment because they don't love him with their all anymore. Now they're loving the things of the world. Believers who are exchanging affections they gave to God for an exclusive relationship are now loving the things of the world. And he's saying, if you love the things of the world, Above and beyond me, you're putting yourself in the opposite corner of the ring. Think about, think about a ring in a boxing match. You're in the opposite corner. What does that mean? You and God are not fighting the same cause. You're not fighting for the same purpose. And, and now God is resisting you, not working with you because you're not working with him. You're at enmity, at strife with him now. And so for us to be divided in our affections, Lord, I love you, but God, I love this stuff over here, but God, I love you, but I love And to hold on to that, he's saying, hey, that's, that's bringing conflict between you and me. And that's bringing conflict between you and others. And you can't live that way. Because there's a continuing distance that we have that sort of intensifies the relationship. I mean, you know, we have these passions and we have these pursuits and these unanswered prayers and, and we're wanting these things and now we're dividing and, and we're, we're dissing ourselves from God. And, and, and I want you to notice that anytime you're having conflict with somebody, now you may not be the root of the cause of the conflict. You may be completely uh, walking in the spirit and, and obedience to the word and they may be completely wrong. But we need to consider sometimes the fact that maybe there's conflict between me and my spouse or me and my children or me and my parents. It's because I've grown distant from God. And that magnifies the conflict. Because I know I'm in conflict with you, and I'm in conflict with God, and I'm pulling away from him because I know if I pull close to him, I'm going to have to settle the conflict. And I don't, I don't want to do that. Notice not only is there a continuing distance from God himself, but there's a convenient disregard for the word of God. Notice in the next sentence, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? There's a, a convenient disregard for the word of God. Because he's saying, hey people, hey people that, that I discipled, hey people that have been discipled, hey people who know what the truth of the word of God is, the scriptures, you have, you have received the scriptures, you have received insight into why you're in conflict and how to, how to manage conflict, but you're completely disregarding conveniently those scriptures because you know you're in violation of what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says and you know that what the Bible says about conflict, but you're not willing to deal with it and you are conveniently saying, you know what, I don't need that verse. 
I don't like what it says. I don't want to read that passage. I don't want to implement that truth. Why? Because it's inconvenient. Because when I dive into the Word of God and I take what the Word of God says and begin to apply it to my relationships with Him and with others, and I don't do what the Bible says because of convenience, that's going to just going to ignite the conflict and make it greater. Because there's a way in the Bible that says we deal with conflict. And if we completely avoid that and don't look there, then how can we ever resolve or manage the conflict we're in if conflict isn't unavoidable and inevitable, which it is? Not only is there a continuing distance from God himself and a convenient disregard for the word of God, but there also, thirdly, is a complete disconnect from the spirit of God. Notice what he says in the next sentence. Ye, he... He, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He, God, sent the Holy Spirit upon our conversion where we placed our faith and trust in Christ and we turn from self and sin and we turn to the Savior and his name is Jesus. He put inside of us at that moment his indwelling eternal presence called the Holy Spirit. We don't become gods, but we have God dwelling within us through his spirit. And his spirit yearns, his spirit woos, his spirit longs for, his spirit craves inside of us as believers, as followers of Christ. He yearns for us to make God exclusive. That's his job. To dwell in us and to pull us. And he longs for, he craves for, hey, Boswell, you're not where you need to be. And he's pulling me away. He's convicting me of the wrong that's in my life. And he's helping me correct the decisions and the path that I am taking. And then he cleanses me through repentance. And then he helps me continue to walk in righteousness. That's his job. He takes the word by the Spirit of God and he, he pulls me away. And the Spirit of God who dwells within the authentic believer is not going to settle for second chair. The Spirit of God that dwells in you is going to continue to hound us as individuals until Christ is first. What they were doing as the Spirit's kind of tugging on them, they were saying, eh. They were doing this number. Ain't listening. I don't want to hear what you got to say. I, I, I don't. Quit tugging on me. Let me go. Uh, don't. You, you know what I'm talking about? Sure you do. Haven't you ever felt like a fish on the other end of the hook? And, and, and the Spirit of God's reeling you in. You're going, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And you're resisting. That's what they were doing. They were resisting the Spirit of God. They were dis. Just, I, I don't want it. And he's saying, when you do that, the Spirit of God can't woo you back to the Father, and there's no way in the world that you're going to be able to manage your conflict. I mean, the fact of the matter is we know when we're wrong. We know what, what needs to be done in order to resolve the conflict in these relationships. The Spirit of God is moving us and wooing us into making God exclusive and to living for each other and putting each other's needs ahead of our own and serving and ministering to each other rather than my own self. And, and so we just, we just I, I don't want to do that. That's what they were doing. And then lastly, notice they were consistent, consistently dismissing 
the grace of God. They were dismissing the grace of God. Notice in the final sentence, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But he gives more grace. Romans 5.20, great passage. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. Isn't that right? Romans 5.20, you ought to write it down. It's a great passage. Wherever sin abounds, grace abounds. What does that mean? It means that those of us who are in Christ, we have received this marvelous grace from the Father. He has bestowed upon us this incredible, gracious act of our redemption. Jesus took upon himself our sins, died in our place, and now our relationship has been reconciled. We've been redeemed. We walk in a right relationship with the Father. But the fact is that when we sin, and we will, because we're human, we have inside of us this little self that's warring with the Spirit, and sometimes self wins, and so we're going to fall. And when we fall, we may not always be cognizant of that. We may not always recognize that at first. And so because we're kind of walking in sin, but we're not completely aware of it, the grace of God covers us. And for the time being, God doesn't go, boom. He's giving us grace. He's giving us a period by which the grace of God covers our ignorance or our, our, our lack of understanding of the of, of the, the fact that we're cheapening the grace of God by continuing to live this way. These people are completely, maybe not all of them, but some of them completely unaware that the grace of God is covering them for the time being. But there's a warning here. And the warning simply says, who does God give grace to? To the humble. He said, guys, you better humble yourself. Well, why is he reminding them to humble themselves? Because humility acknowledges our depravity and our humanity, doesn't it? Humility accepts the fact that without grace, we'd be in trouble. And it's humility then that it causes us to acknowledge our sin before a holy and a righteous God. And it's humility that causes us to tap in to a resource greater than ourselves so that we can live out then the life that he's called us to live as we manage conflict. You can't manage conflict on your own. You need help. So what does this mean for us today? How do I manage conflict? Number one, accept the inevitability of conflict. It's inevitable. I don't care how great you are and how wonderful your spouse is, God's gift to you. It's, it's kind of funny to have young couples in my office, say, ah, you know, uh, they don't see what's coming. There's going to be conflict because he or she is not going to do everything you want. They're not always going to be concerned about your pleasure and your happiness. Uh, and, and, and you may pray and pray and pray for them to change, but they're not changing because you only want them to change so that you can fulfill your own happiness. <laughs> There's a whole other sermon on that. I don't care how great a family you may have, but you're going to get in the car maybe in just a little bit and argue over where you're going to have lunch. And somebody's not going to be happy. Ever happened in your family? Sure it has. I mean, we're human beings, and, and, and it's inevitable. Jesus experienced conflict. It was inevitable for him, and so will you. So it's inevitable. It's going to happen. 
So if it's going to happen, then we need to repent when it does happen to make sure that, that we examine our lives and say, Lord, what is, what, what is my fault? What, what, where have I wronged? Where have I stepped out? How have I distanced myself from you? How can I reconcile my relationship with you so that you and I are walking rightly? I'm not responsible for you walking rightly, only for myself. And as I allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to help me examine my life, I then determine where I am spiritually. And if I need to reconcile with God and and move toward Him in this conflict, because that's going to help resolve the conflict as I move closer to Him in intimacy and love and walk with Him, He's going to then help me in that right relationship, then experience the right wants and the right passions in the right way and to pray the right things. As I submit then to the authority of the Scriptures... Because God's word, God's word always speaks into our relationships with him and with each other. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, how we're to treat each other, how we're to love each other, 1 Corinthians 13. There's all kinds of passages that deal in how we're to relate with each other. So I submit to the authority of the word of God and how I deal with him and with my fellow believer. And then I then walk in the power of the spirit because you know what? I can't do this on my own. There's no way in the world this is going to happen with just little old me. I need somebody outside myself who now has been given to me, who lives on the inside of me that is, is this close to me, that enables me, empowers me to forgive and to seek restoration and reconciliation with God and with those I relate to. Because quite frankly, probably in the midst of the conflict, they've said something that has hurt you so deeply or done something that has damaged you so emotionally that unless the Spirit of God cleanses, you're not going to walk in right relationship. You need the power of the Spirit to empower you, to enable you, and to equip you to have the right relationship. How are you managing conflict in your life? Chances are you had conflict this morning before you came to church. Or you'll have it this afternoon. Tomorrow, you're on holiday. Or next week. Or you work. You live. It's going to happen. Let's manage it biblically. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.